Well, having introduced the book of Titus last week, um, I opened with an emphasis on what I called the grit and the grace in Paul's greeting to Titus. And I hope you uh, enjoyed that message. It was certainly clear that Titus was going to need much grit and great grace as Paul, the apostle, leaves him in the island of Crete to set things in order in various towns. Um, similarly, in our lives, we applied what we learned last week by realizing that we need great grit in standing for truth. It takes some guts, if you will, to be an unmovable, Bible-believing, born-again, walking in the Spirit, ready to declare the truth at all time Christians today, as it has always. And that in order to muster that kind of grit, we inevitably need an amazing great grace. And that God is the supplier of all. So today we, we move forward from that greeting now into the, the body, the beginning of the body of the letter. And I ask you to back up with me to verse 5. As Paul lets Titus know that for this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Now when we explore the idea or the account rather that Paul left Titus in Crete, what we come to terms with is that there must have been a brief uh, lapse in the Apostle Paul's imprisonment in Rome. In other words, he was released for a time. Because as you search through the book of Acts, there is no record of, of in Paul's missionary journeys, uh, him establishing the churches in Crete. And so many scholars, myself included, not as a scholar, but as a Bible teacher, um, agree that if you were to say that Paul didn't ever go there, then it would let this letter be ingenuine. And so he says, I left you there. They were there briefly and quickly what they needed to do. Uh, they had a little bit of time. They established some churches. They declared the gospel, saw people come to faith, and then would establish a church in a community, meaning a body of believers, and then move on to the next township or community. When we come to the phrase to set in order the things that are lacking, it wasn't as though there was a missing element or component in each one of those gatherings of body of believers. There wasn't, you know, a shortfall, something they, they needed that they didn't get from the Holy Spirit. But rather the uh, original language teaches us that Paul was saying, I want you to straighten out what was unfinished to put things in order that are not yet in order. And he, of course, then refers to the appointment of elders in every city. Now, before we 
you know, place our particular paradigm on this word city, I would, I would draw a mental picture for you that is local and that maybe we could all uh, identify with. So if you just drive out this street a little ways and you head toward Pardee and instead of taking a right to go over the bridge, you take a left and you come to where? Campo Seco, right? And Campo Seco for, you know, a lot of intentional purposes, I mean, there's a handful of people that live there. It was at one time a little bit more populated, but as you drive through there, it's it's just a small community. It's, it's not Valley Springs. It's not San Andreas. I mean, though, even those, we would call them a city, uh, exceed really what, the Apostle Paul is talking about appointing an elder for every city, every little community of believers. Township would be a better word, uh, or at least um, an agreeable word. And as we read in the book of Acts, it, it wasn't really um, Paul's method every time to set elders but it was part of what he knew needed to be done in the churches in Crete. Acts 14.22, Paul was writing, he says, Luke was writing about Paul. He says, strengthening the soul of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so this was a part of Paul's routine, but it comes to us even more so, of course, in the pastoral epistles, both First and Second Timothy, and now here in Titus. It is essential uh, in the church that there be some form of order, some form of government, an appointment of leaders or leadership, if you will. Maybe that should go without saying, but, um, you know, a... An animal with no head is an ugly thing. We are called sheep. You imagine a lamb running around without a head. And we know, of course, that Christ is the head of the church. But he does appoint, biblically, elders. This word here is the word presbyteros, if you're taking note this morning. And it is the establishing of a leader or leaders in a given body of believers. And Paul had impressed this upon his helpers that that was necessary. It's great for these, these believers to gather, but the, the healthiest thing would be there to be appointed leaders or a leader in the, each gathering. Now, traditionally, there are three types or three forms of church government. We have what's called the priesthood. Uh, that would be uh, probably more understood within Roman Catholicism where the priests and the Pope run pretty much what is going on in the church. Secondly, we have 
uh, a form of government known as the elders or bishops, uh, presbyteros or, um, or episkopos, where elders, plural, uh, form the, the government, if you will, or the um, order of the church. And then there's a third form of government, if some of you are familiar, not familiar, called congregational, which in that case, the, the congregation itself votes on every issue that comes to the table of, of what the church is going to do, how it is going to do it, how it's going to be financed, and, and all of that. And I would be also remiss if I was not to include uh, the fact that in the late 60s, early 70s, as our late founder, Pastor Chuck Smith, uh, came to grips with what we have called, and Time Magazine even said it, the Jesus Movement, where there was a phenomenal amount of people flocking to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and out of that, churches were born and birthed, that uh, the late Pastor Chuck had spent almost 17 years in denominational church government. And one of the things in his study of the scriptures that he came to and passed to many of us was a, a fourth uh, method, if you will, of governing a church body, and he called it the Moses model, in which... Um, Moses was called to a given body of people to lead them into a greater relationship with God. But even Moses, you remember, Moses, when he got wore out by the lines of people coming him to with questions and questions, his unbelieving father-in-law, Jethro, said, you can't do this by yourself. You need help. And so he appointed these 70 men to deal with the, the thousands of Israelis. And, and so we have in Calvary Chapel Ministries and in the um, family of Calvary Chapel churches embraced what we call the Moses model that is not absent of having elders, New Testament truth, in the church. We have elders here. We have deacons here. Uh, to, um, what would I say, submit ourselves to the laws of the land, we also have a governing board so that we can be a 5013C nonprofit organization, which you have to have in order to be so in the state of California, thanks to President Lyndon Johnson. So um, that's who we are. And that's what we do. The bottom line is that there needs to be a form of government in every gathering of believers. And Paul begins this list here of leaders uh, to be leaders in the midst of gatherings there. He brings us to uh, verse 6 that are similar to First and Second Timothy uh, but it should be noted, as we get into this list, here's what I want us to be very much aware of, is that Crete was not going to be an easy call. 
uh, as you look at verse uh, 12, I think it is, it talks about this was a uh, kind of, of, of low moral character uh, island filled with people. And so here Titus is sent there, and there have been no leaders in, in many pockets of what would be, we would call little churches. And so Titus is to arrive on the scene, and you know Paul sends him this letter and says, Now, Titus, here's what I need you to do. Appoint leaders, elders. And if a man is blameless, we come to verse 6. Notice it's blameless, not sinless. If a man is blameless, this suggests that uh, the word if means that there was to be an observable, irreproachable moral character in an individual that would be considered to be leading in a small township. So if a man is blameless... Proven track record, if you will. Again, not sinless, not without fault, but and not a new convert, not a novice. Again, the, the New Testament Christian hasn't been around very long. We're talking 30, 40 years. And how long it had been since Paul and Titus had been there to establish this church these churches, not very long, but enough time, enough time for him to direct Titus to look for men that were not new in the faith, but that had an observable, irreproachable moral character. That they were the husband of one wife. Now, the Greek language there is debated by various denominational uh, groups. What we know for certain is that uh, polygamy and bigamy were, were not to be taking place. Polygamy, multiple marriages, bigamy, entering into a marriage while married with another. Those weren't the circumstances to be even uh, considered. One way of taking that phrase, the husband of one wife, would be a one-woman man. In other words, I don't know, some of you men may not be married here, but if you are married, that your eyes and your heart and your conduct are to be toward your wife only. There's no clear prohibition to remarriage, no clear prohibition. Some Greek scholars say that it infers that, but when we look at the injunction toward widows in First and Second Corinthians, who are given an admonition to remarry rather than uh, be alone, and when we consider the, the grace of God that uh, there's clearly no prohibition to remarried, uh, remarriage. And so a one-woman man, someone who, who in their community is seen as, man, that guy really loves his wife, takes care of his wife. Uh, his wife is number one in his life. His children, he gets to 
the children as well in the latter part of verse 6, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Now, we, we move from, you know, marriage to the wife to now the children in the household, and the key phrase there is children. While they're still under your mom and dad, father, mother, while they're still under your care, while they're still within your tutelage, that those children uh, are not insubordinate. He uses the word having faithful children. The Greek word uh, pistos there can also mean just submissive as well as being full of faith. In other words, a man would not be disqualified if his younger children had not yet come to faith in Christ, as long as those young children were submissive to their parents. And we in our culture today, uh, we have a, um, a skewed view of what Eastern parental submission uh, really looked like. We get somewhat of a glimpse of that in the um, extreme legal uh, Muslim household. You, you may get glimpses of, of that where maybe you've seen films or documentaries that if, if a child were to go against their parent on any given thing, it was like, you know, an anathema. Because in generations past, if a child did something that, that was insubordinate to their parent, it brought shame upon the parent. And so Paul makes it clear that you know, these things should just be in order before you begin to consider a person for leadership because he summarizes in verse 7, for a bishop, and we use the word here, episkopos, as opposed to presbyteros, an elder, episkopos, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. In other words, such an individual steps into a role uh, not as a servant of men, but as a servant of God to the community of God's people that that individual has been uh, living in, called to, came to faith in. And that those are the things that need to first be in order before you, you go on, Titus. Then he... Then he gets into some jot and tittle here. Verse 7, the latter portion, he says, such an individual is to not be self-willed. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, that's different than self-control, which is in verse 8. Self-willed would be, I'm just going to do things my way no matter what. My way or the highway kind of individual not self-willed, one who embraces the idea that, Father, not my will, but your will be done in the moment, in the circumstance, in the issue. Not self-willed, 
not quick-tempered. Oh, I can't tell you the how many guys I've met that just say, well, yeah, I get mad quick, but I get over it quick, too. Is that supposed to justify quick anger? Answer? No. No. Not that anybody here has ever said that. I know you haven't. Not quick-tempered. In other words, control, in control of one's temper. Not given to wine. Now here we come to the subject of alcohol, which in the day in which Paul is writing, uh, very watered-down wine was a hydration thing, almost like water, not water, but it was, it was something that the Middle Eastern used to hydrate their body. But there was, remember the, the wedding at Cana, where there was the uh, best wine saved uh, at first, right? There was a weaker wine and a stronger wine. So Paul here is talking about a, a, a stronger alcohol that this individual should not be Notice the word given to. In other words, it's their go-to. It's the thing that they would rather do. When someone says to themselves at the end of their work day, you know what, hard day, I need a drink. That's given. That's a given to. As if that drink is going to you know, change the circumstances or alleviate the stresses that I had all day. Medicinally, it has been proved, you know, our great sciences have, has been proved, you know, a glass of wine with the meal uh, encourages good health or something. Okay, that's not given to. That may even be a cultural thing. I know uh, there are some European cultures that a glass of wine with their meal is kind of what happens at the meal, evening meal time. But that's not going to get a drink at the end of the day to soften the hardness of the day that I've gone through. Do you see the difference? I mean, I'm trying to explain it as clearly as I can, and maybe some of you here drink or don't drink. As a Christian, you have the liberty to drink. But remember what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about men placed in a position of leadership. Not violent with words or actions. And men sometimes can be a little violent with their words and their actions. Men can sometimes seek to dominate the conversation because they're stronger, they're, they're more vocal. And there is such a thing as verbal abuse where uh, both a man or a woman can be violent in their words, violent in their action. Paul says such an individual that you're considering for leadership that should not be the case. And he goes on to say, not greedy for money. In other words, where the, 
the focus of that individual is, is how to have more, how to have more money. If I just get, you know, enough, or get a little bit more than I mean, oh, if I get quite a bit, then, then I'm really good. No, that would be greed. And before we just, you know, categorize this, like, Pastor Art, this is a message for leadership. You should just save this for when you gather your guys or something. Time out. We should not look at this as a message only for leading men. These are characteristics that should be true of Christians. Amen? And Titus was thrown into a rough crowd. Born and raised in Oakland. Many of you know that. Stepped out of the Bay Area around 1983. But before then, I mean, ran the streets before I came to Christ. And rough crowd. And can you imagine being set into the, the roughest crowd? Some of you have worked in the prison system. Some of you understand. Be, wherever, you know, the, the gangs, whatever, be placed in this rough crowd. And in that rough crowd, there's, there's a remnant or a little pocket of believers. And in that little pocket of believers, you're supposed to find one that's like got this going on. And you and I go, whoa, Lord, because we, we begin to recognize that God is serious about Christ-like character in his people. Verse 8, not greedy for money, but hospitable. Here's the contrast word, that word but, which always is in Bible study, a contrast from what is in front of it to what's now coming. But hospitable. In other words, open to other people, willing to open their home to other people, their heart to other people, their wallet to other people, their possessions to other people. Hospitable. I love when we, you know, Sherry and I often, we would have folks over, but through the years too, we've We've run into some amazing folks that just have this gift of hospitality. And you can tell it. That you walk into their home and you feel comfortable. It's not like, oh, I don't want to touch anything. I might break it or, you know. You walk into someone who has that gift and you're just at home. A lover of what is good, Paul says. A lover of what is good. What's, what's good today? My goodness. God is good. A lover of God. Sober-minded. Again, a reference to what being given to alcohol can do, can change the way the brain thinks and the mind operates. So, no, an individual that's going to be Helping to oversee God's people needs to be sober in their mind, just, verse 8 still, which would be um, observant to customs and rule, but probably more accurately just right. 
Someone who, who knows right from wrong and is willing to call right, right. Holy, Greek, original word, hagios, set apart. Sim, uh, a synonym or similar to being sanctified. Set apart. Now it's not like, okay, yeah, my, I have Christianity, I'm a uh, football lover, I got my job, I have my crafts. My, set apart for Christ. And self-controlled, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, and self-control. So in such an individual's life, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the activity of the person of the Holy Spirit, who is a he, is to be visible. And you might say, my goodness, to go into that rough crowd and find this going on begs the question, can God change people? Answer, yes. God is in the business of changing people once the life has been submitted to God. If you think, and you're watching at home, you're going to clean your life up before you come to Christ, you've got it absolutely backwards. You come, I come, we come as we are. Amen. We come as we are and Christ, by the grace of God, takes us as we are. And he says, my beloved, I love you. Let me wash you. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Let me root you in my love. Let me grow you in my grace so that as time goes on, the person of Christ is seen in you. God is in the business of doing that today, now, not just then. And, and God would never ask, you know, step out on it. Here's a paraphrase. God would never ask a man to do something that was impossible to do, that he would not yet supply the grace, the power, and the resource to do. So that Paul is sending, leaving Titus there and asking him to set these things in order, we have to agree and assume that these things are so in some men that Titus is going to view. Are these things... Visible in you. They are to be. Because alongside those moral characters, Christ-like attributes, verse 9, this individual is to above all, alongside of that, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. And that phrase gets me because, you know, remember where we are historically? We're not very far along in, in the, uh, the inception of the New Testament church. The gospels are still being written. The, the letters are still being written. So it's not as though 
these guys that Titus is going to choose have a weekly Bible study that they get to go to and, you know, study. How did they get taught? It says, as you have been taught. Don't you just love asking a question of Scripture? That's the best way to learn, right? Ask questions. So how did they get taught? That's your homework for the week? I could make it all you It's it's got to be a reference to the things that Paul taught them in the short time that he was there. Because Paul writing to Titus, Titus would understand, Paul reinforces that it will it will not only be that those observable uh, irreproachable moral character, those observable Christ-like traits, but predominantly his, and now we'll set leadership, church uh, elders and bishops, you know, here, male, anyone in leadership, man or woman, ultimately with Christ-like qualities going on in their life, It will be the faithful word, holding fast the faithful word, that will make them able. See verse 9, the latter part? That he may be able to, by sound doctrine, notice this, taking note, underline it, reach your pen over to the person next to you and scratch on their Bible, that... He may be able to, by sound doctrine, both exhort and convict those who contradict. Question, do you have anybody in your life path right now today that contradicts your belief in Christ? Is there anybody in your circle that contradicts what you know to be so about God the one true God we sang about, about his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Those of you who are watching at home, God doesn't have a lot of sons. Jesus is not a spiritual brother of Lucifer. There's not a ton of ways to get to heaven. There is one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. So there will be people in your life, O Christian, that will contradict that. And it's not going to be a feel-good that will change them. It won't be even your testimony, although powerful sometimes can work, by sound doctrine. That they would be able to, okay, both, double-edged, exhort, which that means encourage those who are seeking, those who have come to faith, encourage them in their walk, and those who contradict to convict or to correct. And there were many in Crete. That's why Paul reminds Titus of this. There were many in Crete. We read verse 10, For there are many insubordinate, both idle, how are we doing for time, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, 
who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. The island of Crete was a mixture of populations. It was uh, not largely Hebraic, although there were Jews there, and there were some Orthodox Jews there that had already begun to twist the teachings of Paul. And he makes it clear to Titus that on this island, in these little townships, there's a bunch of people there that they don't practice being subordinate to the doctrines of the Christian faith. They're idle talkers. They're deceivers. And especially it was the, the Jewish religious of the circumcision that were doing that. And Paul encourages Titus that you need to just get them to close their mouth because this is what they're doing. They're changing entire households, teaching things that ought not to be taught, and they do that for one reason and one reason only, for dishonest gain. I think it goes without saying today, but I'm going to go ahead and say it, that it's 2,000 years later plus, and we still have, quote, quasi-leaders, unquote, in what's called, what they call, quote, Christianity, unquote, who masquerade subverting entire households, teaching things that they ought not teach, and they do it for dishonest gain. I can never really reconcile the whole Learjet thing for a minister or anything along those lines. Some call that the prosperity doctrine. So, I mean, there's your support biblically for um, that not being how it should be. And then we get to verse 12, which we'll close it out real quickly here. Um, Paul goes on to say, one of them, a prophet of their own, said that Cretans are always, notice this list of how they're known by, oh my goodness, are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. You say it with me, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, it would be one thing if, if we just had that account, but Paul says in verse 13, and this testimony is true. He supports the fact that this was a rough crowd. Rough crowd. And so therefore, Titus, when you place men in a position of leadership and you find yourself up against this rough crowd that, that contradicts what we know to be true about the Christian faith, rebuke them sharply. 
that they may be sound in faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Because to all, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him. Being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work that would allow them to be in a place of leadership in the ecclesia, this new thing called the New Testament church of the true and the living God. The underlying question I leave you with this morning is, do you know God? Do you know him? Because if you do, your works will agree to that. And the invitation this morning is to know him. If you don't, to know him better if you do. And to let that gracious spirit of God just work out for it. It is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Just continue to let God work out his grace in your lives and in mine in our households, in our church, in this community in which God has called us to live and be a witness. Amen? Let's pray to that end this morning, beloved. I invite the team back up. Heavenly Father, if there's someone listening at home or within the sound of my voice that can't say they really know you, that that clarion invitation has gone forth to them. And the invite is, is real and present that God wants to be known by you. And for the others of us who would say, yes, we know God, but Lord, we do want to know you better. That it's a lifelong journey. And with each day can get sweeter and sweeter. Would you pour out your spirit upon us both this hour? Draw us close. And by your grace and your word and the precious blood of Christ, Cleanse us and make us a generation that not only speaks to the world, but a generation that clearly knows you. Lord, would you do that?